All right. I can hear myself, and I sound good. John? You always sound good, Michelle. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I can hear myself, yeah. And I can hear myself as well. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> we all Let's have great started. hearing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get started. Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between every Thursday afternoon. But this week, it's a special week. We're doing a lot of programming. I get to be here and record uh, the podcast with my co-host, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club, who also hosts his own program here at the club, Week to Week Political Roundtable Talk. Hi, John. Welcome back, Michelle. <laughs> um, We've got a busy, busy December of Michelle Meow programs. Here. A very busy December. That's just because we have such incredible speakers, uh, such as our guests who are here with us today, who just flew in from Los Angeles. You may know their work from Million Dollar Listing. Uh, much of their programs have aired on Bravo. But of course, you, you probably know their biggest work, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and uh, they have a new documentary out. It's been out uh, since June of the summer of this year, which marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion or Riot. And that is uh, Stonewall Out Loud. And so they're here with us. Let's welcome our guests, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Thank you. Yes. It's nice to have you. It's nice to have you. Um, there's a lot to cover uh, about the documentary, and John and I were actually talking about how much we uncovered as far as things that we didn't know, even though we feel like we're pretty well-versed in the history of Stonewall. But before we get into the documentary, let's get to know you a little bit better. I mean, it's tradition here on the show that we start out with every guest and sharing a coming-out story. Um, there are a couple bits in there that I want to put out there. Some people might not even know that you are uh, married, life partners, and even before getting into television production, you're into music, and you're, you are a pop duo. Right. <laughs> we tend not to dwell on that too much. But um, Randy and I actually met at film school and um, we were partners. We were life partners. We, actually, you couldn't get married in those days, back in those days. And we so we didn't get married, but we were together in uh, as life partners for almost 20, 20 years. But we still um, we're now business partners, um, lifelong friends and finish each other's sentences and so <laughs> um you know we we still we work together we don't live together but um which mean we work together we don't live together but because we work together we kind of do work together we're family yeah um and and many of the people including rupaul um uh, that we work with we've worked with for 20 or 30 years we we tend to have um uh, a long, long term relationships. Yes, we do have long term yeah. relationships. And when we we went to NYU, the gra the graduate film program, and from back then we we were in New York in the East Village in the eighties. A lot of the had a huge inspiration on uh, in on us, and we um, we eventually quit school. And part of you know we had daytime jobs. Fenton worked on Wall Street. I worked on Madison Avenue. Um, for a few minutes, but we were always inspired by the nightclub life. We we were there m mainly as voyeurs, like we never really partied, but we became friends with 
Rue. We did a, um, a documentary called Party Monster and a scripted film called Party Monster about the club kids in the 80s yeah. in New York. And we were always sort of had daytime jobs, but always making stuff um, till the day that we could quit our daytime job and eventually we did okay you don't get to escape it completely tell us about the pop duo oh i I knew you were gonna come back to that um the pop duo was called the pop tarts uh uh, the fabulous the fabulous and um sort of the inspiration behind well Randy and i you know this was sort of we're quite old and so this was the time of you know new wave and the sort of that first wave of electronic music and we were very inspired by that and we naively thought, given that the independent film business really didn't, was just emerging. It wasn't even really a business. It was so hard to get the money to make a film. So we naively thought, well, we'll just write some hits, have some record number one. We'll become pop stars. We'll become pop stars, and then we'll use the money to make films. Sure. Um, that, you know, <laughs> plan A didn't work out, so we had to go with plan B. And by the way, thanks for clarifying your relationship. You can't believe everything you read on the internet these days. Um, but you know what I love is just the uh, this is the queer family, and that you can continue on, you know, reinventing your relationship, and everything's fine. Everything's fine. We we're joking last night. The the L word reboot is back, and people mm-hmm. are like, "Who are you going to watch it with? Ex girlfriend number one, ex girlfriend number two, three or <laughs> right. all?" And well, yes, much I all. mean we we did both actually subsequently get married, actually yeah. married, and we're both now. Actually, subsequently divorced. So, <laughs> so yes, you're completely right. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, I wasn't yeah. very far off. Well, so meeting Rue Paul, um, and then fast becoming mm. friends. I mean, this relationship, twenty, thirty years. It really has. It's not only changed your lives, but it's changed all of ours and many people who watch TV. Yes, I mean, I, <laughs> wow. I, I mean the, the the thing about the thing about Rue is, you know, I. I so, Sometimes, maybe a few times in your life, you have a moment of instant clarity and recognition. And I'd say that meeting Rue was one of those those moments because even though he looked very different, um, there was no question in either of our minds that here was a major star. And, um, of course, it also, given the time, it seemed unlikely. We didn't quite know how it would all work out, but we were just convinced... He was a star, and it was a question of waiting for the world to catch up to that. Um, and Renny and I both loved. We went to the Pyramid Club. We saw these incredible drag acts, and they were. What was so amazing about drag then was that, and now I suppose is that it was a. It was more about taking everything in pop culture, and at the same time as celebrating it, also making fun of it. So it didn't. It wasn't a hateful thing. It was just an absurdist sort of pile everything it was absurdist and and that absurdity seemed to match the emerging media saturation celebrity culture in in which we really do live and and it was also a time you know the east village then was a very diy culture that but it was also sort of starting to explode people from uptown were coming downtown and there it did seem and we were young but there seemed to be this promise of um of the 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 possibility to do your own thing and make it work and rue and fenton and i were all very much of that 
mindset of, in fact, the, the very first show that we sold was, we sold to Channel 4 in the UK and it was called, um, Manhattan Cable. And basically we licensed public access shows in Manhattan, you know, back before the, before the internet, the, the interwebs and, and, and YouTube. And there, you know, every, public access existed and people could ha- had to have their had to have the ability to have their own TV show and we were all obsessed with it because it was like Robin Bird and all these iconic New York uh personalities who were just making their own TV and it was so great it was authentic it was fresh it was YouTube before YouTube and so we would just repackage that and bring it over to the UK and that's that that idea, that idea of doing your own thing was really inspiring to us then. And that was like before Instagram and, and everything else that's going on now. I, I suppose it was, was really like punk was the uh-huh. punk was the thing that changed everything because it was, you know, British punk bands couldn't play, couldn't sing, which certainly took care of my abilities in music. And they had no money, and yet they were able to have pop hits and be pop stars. And it was just this surge of energy that I think iterated throughout the culture in all different mediums over over a long period of time. But it was that it was that just do it sensibility that punk kind of introduced. And we're going to get into your documentary, uh, obviously, quite a bit. One of my thoughts while I was watching it, though, and learning some of the things about, and we'll get into this, some of the laws that were in place back in the 60s and 50s in New York was just, I mean, I was stunned knowing, it's like even in New York, do you think, and this might be a weird direction to go with this, but I mean, of all the times of the past century that you could have been in New York trying to start your life, start your business, start your creative uh, uh, endeavors, you hit the right time. I I think yes. I think that's the I, absolutely like it was a, a sort of yes. I think that the eighties in New York, it, also even just physically in the in the East Village, we lived in a building and Lady Bunny was there and Sister Dimension and we could walk around the block to the Pyramid Club where these amazing artists who really genuinely did inspire us. Like even to this day, still drag, you know excites us like like no other art form and um but i also think it was it was this t- the timing i don't think our lives i guess you could say that for everybody and every uh, you know but our lives wouldn't be the same i mean you, you couldn't have done that in 1950 i mean mm-hmm. right. couldn't have done it in 1960 and i, I mean, think and yeah. and partially right now i think because we're such old queens we're very nostalgic for that time we're right now we're producing a, a film about uh um uh, David Wojnarowicz. I don't know if, if you're familiar with him, but he was this amazing uh, artist uh, in the 80s in the East Village. He was sort of uh, HIV. He he died of AIDS, but he was uh, an activist artist who just had a retrospective at the Whitney. But it's doing that film, which is directed by a guy named Chris McKim. We were able to. Um, to kind of celebrate and and help retell the story of New York in that time. Yes, because there was this this moment when, in the East Village, literally people would start an art gallery in the bathroom of their mm-hmm. walk up apartment, and that's how 
Wojnarowicz got his start being in a show at Gracie Mansion and Civilian Warfare. And these were tiny galleries. They were like the size of this dais that we're standing on. And and it, you just saw that whole thing explode from an, uh, a point of view of art. It, uh, so it was a unique thing to, Exciting, yeah. to mm-hmm. witness. But it's interesting you mentioned the 50s because, of course, that's also when Andy Warhol moved to New York and became a successful commercial artist. And I think it's a reminder that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who went before. And I think Warhol definitely blazed the path, creating the factory. I mean, you know, let's drag queens have existed for a long, long time, even before Warhol. And Warhol did a lot to create, give them cultural force and give them a, a presence in in the culture that I don't think they had. Yeah. Um so I think it's yeah. been a, it's actually been a long a long process, but there's no question at the end of the seventies, early eighties, that was a that was a a unique tipping point, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump into Stonewall out loud, and because I think that all comes full circle in a lot of ways. I mean, our art is political, our drag is political, even is as much of it, all of it is freedom of expression. And um, our history, of course, is political. So with Stonewall Out Loud, it is a production with your company, World of Wonder, as well as YouTube Original. Um, I think they approach you both on this idea, and it's inspired by Dave Isay and StoryCorps and Mm -hmm. a, a lot of the recordings that they had taken from the original recordings from individuals who were recounting the days of, of Stonewall, the riot, the rebellion. Um, yeah. So when, you know, this project fell on your lap, uh, talk to us about just kind of what, what was going through your mind? Cause eventually we find out that you involve uh, notable young LGBTQ artists and leaders into this project and, and they lip sync over the mm. recordings and then there's there's a reason for that well i think one of the one of there's a couple of reasons for it but one of the challenges was how do you make a film about a historical event without it feeling like history and that was something that was of concern to youtube because so many of the youtube viewers are much much younger mm. and also i think you know it's sort of ironic that you know in this sort of internet age where everything is immediately accessible to you at any one point Sometimes like things that even relatively recently happened seem like very long time ago. And I think there was a sort of an aspect of that with Stonewall. And and I think we felt very strongly that even though Stonewall happened in 1969, that struggle that is encapsulated in that moment is still something with us today, especially today. Mm-hmm. And is still the very same people, the people of color and the trans a community who picked up those rocks and threw those bricks, they are as marginalized and to some degree um, oppressed as, as they were. And so Stonewall isn't something that exists in the past. It's it's very much a present day thing. So that was one of the, the sort of thoughts we had as we were trying to figure out how to turn this, what was Dave Isay's first radio documentary into a film. Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, the, the, Dave's documentary was the first documentary about Stonewall. It was like around 20 years after the event, but it does, it is the original voices of people who were there at the event, actual witnesses. And we basically used his, his audio documentary is the basis. It's the spine of our film. Um, 
as Fenton mentioned, it was important for YouTube that, that, that this was a film that was accessible to young people. But I think it was probably, I mean, it was as important to them as it was to us. Like, we'll say it many times, we are old queens. As we get older, I think we feel more of a sense of responsibility to kind of, to, to share the past, our past, and and w- with young people and young people, the LGBTQI and everything else community. Um, so, so in trying to figure out creatively how to do this, we were sort of brainstorming, and then it was like, oh my god, lip sync for your life. It was Randy's idea. <laughs> it's like we should, you know, instead of just pl- plastering stuff, like let's get people to lip sync it because the thing about. And this is, you know, even before Drag Race, like a great lip sync could wreck me, um, you know, and there is something sometimes it, it can be, I think sometimes it could be more powerful than a live performance, certain live performances, because it just requires a kind of soulful connection, like those great lip syncs that you, you see at a bar that you're like, oh my God, and you're screaming and throwing monies. There is something that happens. There's something magical and spiritual. And we thought if we could, if that could happen in this film, then, uh, um, I, you know, people will forget that, you know, it's based on this, these old recordings. People will, you know, some people think history is a dirty word. Like that could just sort of could could be gone, mm-hmm. and um, and so that's what we did. And it was that's why we it did. was kind of we didn't know it was going to work. Totally. Um, and the and YouTube, they said, "Oh well, can we come down when you start taping?" And we we're like, "No, um, no. <laughs> um, because we were like, it, we're just so anxious that in the room, this whole thing could like." come off the rails truly we really truly had no idea if it was going to work in fact like our editor this uh francie catchler who we worked with for like 10 years she's like really (laughs) and like when we started filming it she came down and to watch it and it was literally like in the moment it was magical like we just knew oh my god this is like everyone kind of got chills and and it was like channeling David Ice and and you know major props to David and StoryCorps for for doing these recordings that made really make it all possible. It's it, you know they're the people who who um, help preserve the history and th- that is so important for us to continue to pass on. Some of the people you have there uh, doing the lip syncing, I mean, Lance Bass. Uh, um, Adam Rippon, he's not. Does he? He's he's doing some interviewing, yeah. right? He's not doing the. Lip- he does both. Does he? Okay, sorry. he does both. Um, and we've had Adam here. Uh, how did you reach out? To, did did people hear about this project and contacted you, or did you say this person would be a good match for this? Well, you know, sometimes casting is really tricky, yeah. and people just don't want to do things. <laughs> um, but um, the, I have to say, I think uh, when they heard about it and were told what it was. We were overwhelmed with the response and we, you know, I, I think sometimes when you're making a documentary, um, you, we often say this, you have to let the story tell you how to tell it. Yeah. And I, I also believe that sometimes sort of a magical 
magical thing happens where if you let it, it, it will just sort of take care of itself. And it's not to say you don't have to work hard and show up and all the rest of it, but it was amazing the way people came through. And, and Raja, for example, playing Sylvia was just such it's, a magical uh-huh. pairing. And um, just in the room when, when Raja did it, it was just so, in, it was so intense. And it, it suddenly brought back a figure who's no longer with us suddenly became powerfully present, you know. I was just going to say now for, especially for everyone listening on, online, uh, explain some of these, these people you're talking to because maybe they don't know about who, who these people are. And really, I mean, some of the stories they tell are just so touching. You know, I think one of the interesting thing is that um, I think na- to some extent naively we thought Stonewall, it would be, super well documented no i suppose you know as a consequence of living in an instagram facebook yeah. selfie age you just think everything's filmed right i mean it is it is today but um there are about six still photographs of stonewall itself and um it was shocking to us that actually it wasn't until 20 years afterwards yes people had written about it but to actually sit down and make a documentary, albeit an audio documentary, yeah. it was 20 years in, in the telling. So I, I suspect many stories have been lost from that, mm. from those, those, those evenings. Um, and, and, and our film includes patrons. There's a police officer that yeah. is um, the vice squad from the vice squad who's portrayed by Daniel Francesi, who's an actor and an activist. Um, and his character is really interesting because it's, it's, he, he's coming from a very different point of view, but he almost has a little bit of an arc in the, like his, his story is the arc because he, I don't think he ever even considered, I mean, the whole notion of gay liberation back then, it was just so foreign. It, like, we are living in such a completely different world that, um, that is beyond comprehension. So, so when you're, and I think you kind of, you kind of get that with the film. And then just to hear this police officer embodies that because it is this guy who's just doing his job and has never really considered the notion of civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of casual way he talks about gay people as somehow not human, just right. does not deserving of respect. And the, and the irony is he, he doesn't quite even get there at the end of the film. He's like, well, I, well, yeah. I still don't know if I was right or if <laughs> there's something missing with these people. And it was just it was interesting to have that as a snapshot, as a, as a moment of, of how differently people thought then. Mm-hmm. And also a reminder that even though there's been so many changes, there are still people who think like yeah. that. Well, and Fenton, you made the point earlier about how there are still parts of the LGBTQ community, especially people of color, especially trans, who they haven't gotten this wonderful benefit from the. I mean, Stonewall, wonderful for white guys. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly. Uh-huh. Um, is there a way? I mean, is there a way of well, let me ask it a different way um do you have are you finding different reactions to the to the documentary from these different portions of the lgbtq community yeah and i i think i mean the the reaction has been 
the overwhelming reaction has, has been people saying, I had no idea. Yeah. This is amazing. And we, we did a screening at the Stonewall Inn, which was especially goosebump inducing because to actually be there in this legendary place where this yeah. legendary thing took place and that that place is still there was, was pretty amazing. So you, there's that response. And then there's also, and that, I think this is equally important to acknowledge, you know, Dave Isay's documentary is a is a slice or a, 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 an indiv- a, a, a single perspective, yeah. and you realize so much has been lost, and so many stories have gone untold. Like, for example, here in San Francisco, three years before Stonewall, um, was the Compton um, Cafeteria, yeah. which mm-hmm. you know. So history is is always a slightly. <laughs> Um, unfair uh, mistress. And New York yeah. always is several years behind San Francisco. I want to stay on that, though, because there is there has been a huge conversation around different stories, perspectives of what actually happened that night. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's been, in my opinion, at least hurtful or uh, painful for our community is to acknowledge the fact that some of our stories have been lost or are being revised. For example, you know, Dave hadn't captured Sylvia Rivera's, you know, voice and story. Uh, maybe we wouldn't have known about many other trans-identified folks who were very much a part of this riot. Um, your opinion, just because there also has been other productions and other people who have tried to tell the Stonewall story, some have failed you know, according to many of us in the community at, at trying to do that because they didn't include um, some of those event individuals. Do you feel that with, uh, with Stone, you know, uh, Stonewall Out Loud and your project that this could be a, a little bit more of an honest approach, a truth, especially for folks who, who didn't, you know, who didn't know of it, who didn't, are, are learning of it because of the project? I don't think you can ever trust any one telling of history mm. and I, I so you know there are people that we talk to who who seem to be at the same place at the same time and have completely different versions of events so i think we i, I think we're contributing to um to broadening the telling of the story and reminding people of the significance and importance of it. And, uh, but I, you know, I wouldn't, uh, um, history is so wacky that way. And you can, you can do your darndest to get it right. And, um, people can disagree or argue or have a different perspective. I mean, things have become so, you know, history's become so subjective and, and the one with the loudest voice often wins. I do think that the, you know, the, the Compton cafeteria, that, that, that story doesn't seem to, um, you know, people don't talk about it. And, um, it's, it's getting people to talk about history that sometimes give, you know, makes yeah. a difference between it being a headline and it being like below the fold. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, and I think, I think that's why we're slightly obsessed with documentaries <laughs> because, um, it's not so much that they're necessarily definitive, but they are important aspects of telling stories. And, um, just, just thinking about this year's, 
uh, Oscar race and watching all the different submissions, um, you realize that what's happening in media is that so much of traditional news reporting has been has been transformed in a way that there are significantly fewer opportunities to tell truth through those traditional channels. Mm. And you realize actually documentary filmmakers, whether it's, you know, Citizen K or Houston or, I mean, there's, there's 129 feature documentaries this year for the, uh, for the Academy Award. But you looking at them in aggregate, you realize what an enormous amount of important truth telling is in all that work and that, that a documentary is a way often because it's not bound by needing to cut to a commercial break every two minutes. It's not bound by having to have sponsors necessarily. It can be made over a period of years by You don't someone. have product placement in your documentary. Yeah. Right. Well, well um, <laughs> no, but also we've, we've made well. so many documentaries and, and, and for us, like we don't, we don't normally do traditional mm-hmm. historical documentaries. Like we, we love them, love Ken Burns. We, uh, but we, we're more, you know, um, we like to do docs about ideas that are provocative, that are entertaining. You know, like, like with this film, we came up with the lip syncing. It's like, oh my God, a uh, hundred years ago, we did a film called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And when we we're making that film, it was like, oh my God, puppets. Let's get puppets to narrate it because that's, so for us, Cause she it's, made her she built her em- empire on puppets. puppets. But for us, making a doc is like, it's also like a creative challenge of, Telling a story and and getting it historically accurate as much as any story can be historically accurate, but but also kind of creating an impression and a feeling and and provoking people to to think about stuff. I I appreciate your answer very much because it's less of the cagey, divisive kind of attitude that have existed around this conversation in our history. It's scary to think about that. You know, much of our history, some of it's missing. A lot of people, if they didn't leave artifacts behind, we don't have them anymore. Mm. I mean, the, the, it's scary to think that we have six I- images. I think that's what Fenton had m- mentioned in, uh, you know, actual Stonewall um, photos, especially if we're talking about teaching the young. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, you know, in California, we just passed a bill that will include LGBTQ folks in our history, in our textbooks. But we don't have a lot of these things. Who I mean, it's really up to us to tell this story. Um, so I would love to hear just really. I, I think where I'm trying to get at, and it's it's hard. It's so hard to articulate this because I I could feel uh, folks you know who are part of the the movement who were there who started pride movements because of Stonewall uh-huh. have this very you know desperate voice in them to want to tell the younger generation so that we don't lose, you know, the, where, who we are in our history. So, um, your opinion, I mean, are we doing a great job? I could see from like Adam Rippon and, and Lance Bass and, uh, Raja and all those involved in the project that it was really meaningful for, for them to, to hear these folks and these individuals voices and to face reality that, you know, there was once upon a time we were beaten, we were thrown in jail, we were fired, we were illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the joys of this experience, personally for me, and I think for Randy too, was was meeting someone like Tree Freddie Tree Sequoia, who 
was a bartender back at the Stonewall when it happened in 69 and is still a bartender at the Stonewall in 2019. And he... And a frisky one. And a very, yes, very frisky. <laughs> and he, you know, um, he and Adam really hit it off and really got to... It was, it was a... Adam was so excited and moved to actually be able to sit and talk to him. And then Tree himself was... People say, well, what did it feel like to be making history? Mm. And he was like, we didn't feel like we were making history. We were, we were just having a good time, which isn't in any way to trivialize it. But it was interesting because I think that no one felt at the time that these stories had significance or that deserved to be mm, respected, I suppose. And that he... He, he himself is happily surprised at how people now do think this is a story that is worth telling and, and worth remembering. But I think that idea of having a good time is like in the moment, it was really a very punk thing. It was like we have enough. And I think that um, sometimes perhaps we, must, we think that as individuals, we don't have power in society and that what we think doesn't count. But actually, in that moment, Tree and others, they just picked up a rock and they just said, enough. And also in a, a moment facing great violence, they did a chorus line kick dance that completely freaked right. the police out. <laughs> All right. a very, very long way of saying, I think it's ultimately about just doing it. And telling those stories and keeping those keeping those records you don't necessarily have to tell the story but just preserving whatever you can because yes. yeah we, we should note uh if people who have not seen the documentary you can watch it free on youtube just search for uh stonewall out loud uh, it's also on world of wonders on your website on our channel uh youtube channel well presents yep. yes and uh tonight there's a screening of it at the embarcadero cinemas so uh, lots of chances to see it. It's it's very interesting. We talked earlier. Uh, we kind of began mentioning that there were some things that you know surprised us. You know, hearing these stories and, and learning certain things. For me, I guess it, it was some of just the the details of the laws against homosexuals in New York City before Stonewall. What they could wear, what you know, where they could go, where they could gather, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, again, these these were you were taking you know audio from from interviews that had been around for a while. But did you learn anything that surprised you as you have uh, examined it, either as a part of this uh, project or just in researching Stonewall over the years? I mean, definitely the 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 vice laws were surprising to me like i i knew that there were restrictions but they seemed pretty specific and how many male archaic. articles of clothing you yeah. have to have yes <laughs> um that was pretty surprising in the uh, brown bag fridays and the extra tax that you had to pay as or at the bars and they came collecting the money just to 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 be a, a gay bar um we are up around that time in which we ask the audience to engage with our guests. And so you get a chance to ask questions as well. And so, yeah, if you have a question, raise your hand. Speaking to the mic, it's being recorded for our podcast. Right here. Hi. Thank you for doing this. And 
for the work you've done. Um, on the on PBS, there was a I think it was on an American Experience or it might have been a Ken Burns. I'm not sure, but they did a Stonewall and they showed a woman who was um, being arrested and she seemed to almost be the kickoff point. Am I recalling this correctly? Um, yes, you probably are. I mean, it should be said that in other documentaries, um, footage has been used, archive material has been used of riots and arrests that most likely isn't actually Stonewall, but has subsequently come to be virtually grandfathered in. I don't think it was, no one was, I don't believe there was any attempt to mislead, but in terms of actual authentic, proven documentation from Stonewall itself. There's very, very little. Yeah, I, I think, so I think that that particular piece of video archive probably wasn't necessarily, it could have been from Stonewall later that week, but it wasn't during the flash, the flashpoint moment. moment. There were many there were many women there and there were as many women as there I mean that's that's the other kind of um for me it's kind of reaffirming that actually the the people on the front line women trans women drag queens they're like like there is this and 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 the white gay guys, I'm one of them, we get to benefit from it. But it's so much progress for our community often comes from the outliers. You know what I mean? They're the ones who are sort of pushing us forward. And um, yeah, I mean, Sylvia Rivera herself was, yes, was, you know, came under attack from her own community um, quite quite savagely and i i do sometimes think as a community it can feel like a you know we can attack each other far more we should support each other more than we attack each other you know that it feels we face such tremendous opposition and you know Especially the train now. is coming at you you know <laughs> it's from, like from not a good time right now. Mm. now i did live in new york for a couple of years but i i never went to stonewall and I'm a little bit curious on what is it like today. I ask this because I used to work in a building where in the basement was the original Billy Goat Tavern. And you go there and it's basically all shtick, basically hearkening to the Saturday Night Live skit you've probably seen back again back in the 80s or 90s or whenever that was. Tell us a bit about Stonewall today. What is it like? What are the people who are running it like? What was your reception there like? <laughs> it's, you know, it's at the great... The, it hasn't been Disney have not been near it. It hasn't been sort of it's I, I know it's a monument now, but it's still just a regular bar, um, <laughs> really regular bar with great people behind the bar. It's 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 actually really great because yeah. it's got, it's this famous place. But it's also completely, it feels completely <laughs> as it ever was an authentic and just the same same kind of place, which is kind of like. Oh, and not nice. particularly PC. It's it's where Lady Bunny do, regularly does her big shows, which are filthy and the most un PC things possible. Which is great. It's I, I, t to me just because that's the spirit of of part of the spirit of our community. You know, to to, to kind of 
defend that kind of and support that kind of outrageous artistry? I'll be proof that it, it's still a regular old bar. I did go to Stonewall on my trip to New York and uh, like a <laughs> history geek that I am and, you know, go right. up to the bar and I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> I couldn't believe Madonna was actually on that stage <laughs> at New Year's because, yeah. like, it's really tiny, yeah. you know. And I say to the bartender, like, you know, that, like, like, I wanted her to tell me more, like, what, you know, the history and tell I'm here. And uh, the bartender's like, what do you want to drink? <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I do recommend going to, to Stonewall if you, in the bar if you can. <laughs> we have another question back here. You say, you say there's very little documentation, photographs for that evening. Um, but my recollection, I was not there. Um, but my recollect, re- recollection is learning about Stonewell um, while I was living with my parents 400 miles away. Somehow, that weekend, I... and. I'm not sure that's a valid memory. I certainly knew about Stonewall by August mm. because I visited it. But I th- think that I knew about Stonewall almost as soon as it happened. Mm. Um, my sources could have been Time or Newsweek or the Washington Post. So it I think the seems first... to me it must have made national news. Oh, yes, it, it did. It was written about. Absolutely, it was written about. I and think there were articles. It was first the village, like, it was first the local village voice, and then it right. spread out to the national news. But it was, it was written about in... Almost immediately. Almost yeah. immediately. Almost. It, it just wasn't filmed as it happened. And it also took... It, it wasn't like... It didn't happen instantaneously. It was sort of over a period of time. We, we've touched on this a number of times, how this was not a time of social media. Have you mused on what it would have been like had there been Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Periscope and everything? Oh, my then? God. It would have been trending. <laughs> it would have been trending. <laughs> like, it would have gone viral, right? It would. Yeah. I, I kind of want to sit on that. I, I mean, I, yeah, it's been over 50 years since... Stonewall, and uh, certainly many of us are privileged today to not have to have gone through what we had to go through to come out. Um, but there, there could I, I think politically in what's going on, a lot of the issues that still impact our community, especially the most marginalized and vulnerable, uh, we could have another Stonewall, mm-hmm. and it could trend. And why aren't we there yet? Or could we potentially get there again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are all kind of questions I ponder. And, and also has the impact of, of, and I'm sounding like an old fart, but like has the impact of media and, and you know, the internet and Instagram and all that. How, are we sort of numb? Like, is there, are we numb? Instead of going that? out, mm-hmm. you know, we just post to Facebook. Yeah, you know, like has our outrage. That's all I do about Trump. Facebook every day. Yeah, you know. but, but you know, you. But maybe we'll have to march on Washington. Seriously, though, like, you know, I find myself having endless conversations with friends. Like, I can't believe we're not out in the streets. 
and then we go back to doing what we're we're doing. And so it, uh, I do worry sometimes that we seem to progress so far, and yet have we? And to have all of these capabilities, do they protect us, or do they protect someone else? Have we gone to the point of no return? So thank you so much for being here. I lead one of the LGBTQ at work. I work at Twitch, somewhat a competitor of YouTube. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and one of the feedback that I want to give you is education. We just finished our 2020 goals in terms of what we want to focus on. And sitting here and just listening in terms of the wealth of information. So the documentaries that you guys do is so important because even at work, people are eager for education. And, you know, we're global. So it's not just U.S. citizens, it's other citizens as well. So I just want to say thank you so much. Mm. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. And thank- Maybe that's, that's, the, that's how it, we have to look at it from a positive side that it's not just the LGBTQ community fighting for ourselves, that there are other people. If we put the information, the documentaries out there that more people um, maybe make better decisions or, or vote for better leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then hopefully that leads to better policies and laws that protect LGBTQ people. So we don't have to always talk about how oppressed we are every single day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so. I, I agree with you, and I think it's about just storytelling. And I think it, it isn't necessarily about storytelling from the hindsight of history of, of looking back, but telling stories in the moment and recording things that are happening now. When Randy Ira in the East Village, one of our actually really great inspirations um, was a guy called Nelson Sullivan, who just one day picked up a video camera and would videotape everyone and everything and he did it for oh, i don't know six seven maybe eight years until very sadly he he had a heart attack and died but over that time he created this enormous archive of life in the east village in the you can google him and you'll and there's lots of footage of us just like walking around the east village and but they're all there Lou, bunny rupaul john saxon and it's really just a remarkable trove of it you know, gives you that, that ability just to look back. As we wind down, I, you know, again, thank you so much for the documentary. And like John and I mentioned it earlier, uh, you just, all of it, all of it, we just kind of have to always keep talking about ourselves and tell our stories. And then hopefully folks like you who are brilliant and can make it all look great and sound great um, are, are in the process of telling the stories too. So I want to go back to the fact that you've been incredibly successful in this media of television and, uh, and, and how even though the traditional standard old tube has changed, you, you're still really successful kind of in both. So all over the place, right? Like the internet, so YouTube, um, cable, and even right, television. And um, what do you think keeps you successful, especially when you're so focused on LGBTQ? What keeps us successful is our tribe. Like, and Rue says this all the time, but like, we have this company called World of Wonder, and we work with a lot of like-minded people who are artists who need to make a living but also want to make art, and some of them are showrunners for different, you know, of our traditional cable shows, and and then on the side they'll, you know, 
direct a documentary. Like that, we find ways to to keep those people in our family. RuPaul's Drag Race, like so many of the people who work on that show, have been working on that show for like over ten years now. So it's it really is like. A, it's like a pop and pop shop in a way. <laughs> and, you know, we're there and Fenton and I are so fortunate that we also get to sometimes direct and do those things. But we also have like a family to feed. And um, and we it's sort of it's the tribe that lifts up and helps us be as productive as we are. It is. And that tribe in the widest sense, I do think this is the gay century. You know, I I know there have been some terrible setbacks. I mean, there's no the tragedy of AIDS is is in its scale and dimension essentially unspeakable. But I think in the broadest context, I don't think there's ever been an age in human civilization where what what we as gay people can contribute to society is greater than ever before. And and Randy and I sometimes laugh about this that. What is pop culture? It's gay. Totally gay. I mean, it's it, totally gay. Uh, and uh, that is, that it's is, like, uh, it's a, it's a great thing, you know, and I know that there are people out there who are worried that, you know, we're out there evangelizing and converting people and doing all sorts of sinister things. But actually, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, whether you're gay or straight, there's really nothing about gay culture to fear. And I think what we've discovered with Drag Race is that it's something that, Straight people can relate to and enjoy just as much as as gay people because it's not it, it, it's more queer than it is gay. And I think I do think we are all queer. We all are queer. We're all unique. We all are outsiders. We are like like the gay experience helps you understand that deeply. But I think everyone relates to that, and so that's that's what's brought all of our friends and our tribe together. They're not all gay necessarily but they're all queer mm-hmm. so great. okay so <laughs> so what are some of the other stories that you want to tell what what do you have you recently completed as well, oh, well what, we just, what other we, things we, are you we just finished um uh liberty mother of exiles which uh, is a film about the statue of liberty and when this project first came to us we were like oh good god what can you what can you possibly say that Ken Burns, for example, has not said. You know, well, we all know the Statue of Liberty. It's a universally known image. And yet, you know, there is more to her story than you know. And, and we found out, yes, you know, um, the original Bartoldi, the sculptor who wanted to build the biggest sculpture in the world, his original model was a Muslim peasant woman because the statue was going to stand at the mouth of the Suez Canal. And then, you know, obviously an immigrant. The statue was designed by the French, built by the French, you know, first assembled in Paris by the French. And then, of course, lastly, yes, a drag queen. We found the drag queen angle because uh, Bartholdi <laughs> has been a, a long, you know, who is the face of the Statue of Liberty? Is it? Is it his mother? Is it um, other people say it was a prostitute in the district where the statue was first assembled in France? But um, Elizabeth Mitchell wrote a book recently in which she believes that it was his brother who Bartoli was very, very close to and who died young of, of mental illness. Um, but yes, if, 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 if it was his brother, and it kind of looks like it. Like a man. His um, that would make the Statue of Liberty <laughs> a drag queen. 
So, so yeah, so, so we did that for HBO, and actually, you can see it on HBO Go now. Yeah. It just moved over to HBO to the other thing, and we're we're working on a film right now about gun violence, and we we paired up with Big Frida, who is someone that we've worked with for many years, and um, did a, a series for like six seasons for Fuse, but we're doing. Um, a sort of snapshot of gun violence in New Orleans and, 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 and it's a surprising, it's like a different sort of unex, well, I'm sure it's been explored, but for us, it's been a surprising look at gun violence. Um, and we're making that now. We do a lot of stuff that we do independently. Mm-hmm. So like that and our Wojnarowicz film, um, we, we're doing a film about breast in, uh, uh, breast implant illness. Breast implant mm. illness with Michelle Visage from Drag Race. Again, all those projects are things that we independently finance and produce, and and we get them to a certain point, and then we'll we'll take them out to festivals and hopefully sell them. Or if we don't, we you know, if we don't, we don't. Your stuff is, I mean, it's, it's out there. We know of your work. So I have every hope that, uh, you continue to tell our stories or our parts of it. Um, that'll go on and, and, and drag, I mean, finding drag in everything. <laughs> I think that's right. part of your, your deal. Well, well, if you have a last burning question, we'll take it before we end the program. Anyone? All right. Um, I get the last question. Usually John, do you have your last my mind is just blowing up for when the right wing outrage squad hears you guys, your, you know, your, your statement that the Statue of Liberty is, is a drag. I mean, that's <laughs> Stephen Mella. Yeah. Call yes. him up. Yes. <laughs> Devin Nunez will sue you. <laughs> okay. We'll save that for another uh, show. Um, but make sure you check out uh, Stonewall Out Loud, and you can catch it on YouTube, just as John had said. Uh, and there was also a screening tonight. Just curious. Has anybody seen it? so far um check it out yeah yeah it's only half an hour (laughs) but packed packed with a lot of information the last question is you know really um about our future and you've seen drag i think evolve over time from when it was extremely political to where today i mean we have uh, kids as young as nine or younger who are expressing themselves in drag sometimes and, and just what any kind of words of, of how that makes you feel and being hopeful for, for us, for all of us. And looking back 50 years of Stonewall. Yeah. I think, um, I'm very excited about, you know, kids expressing themselves and playing dress up and being who they want to be. Um, you know, I have a kid who's, just turning 13 and he you know he he wears a nike those nike um pride sneakers and i don't know if i I don't know if he's gay or if he's not and he that's for him to decide but he has no he just doesn't see it as as an issue he has two dads obviously and he doesn't see it as an issue and i love that comfort with it as opposed to uh and even the even the fact that i can have kids is to me an amazing thing and that uh yes there's some people out there who don't think i should be allowed to have kids but 
they're wrong and they're in a you know an ever decreasing minority and i just i just feel very hopeful about the the future especially when i look at my two kids because i think they will have empathy for other people which i think is the best of what being gay is that you can have empathy for people who aren't like you and i think that's so that's what we need mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, I'm hopeful for the future. <laughs> I mean, I, I I love that people are taking drag more seriously. I feel like it will be probably our, a part of our legacy, which makes me really proud because I think the world will always have the potential to be a better place with drag queens in it and with drag with you know. Partially for their, for them being irreverent, but also for their artistry, for, with the whole notion of what drag is as an art form, which is to kind of, to, to sample the world we live in. And, um, and yeah, so, so I feel like they're gonna help push us in the right direction in drag we trust yeah. maybe one day we'll have a drag queen on a dollar bill in the bill. white house <laughs> or the white house <laughs> well Fenton and randy thank you so much for joining us here and thank you for stonewall thank out loud and thank you all for joining us here for the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. Like I mentioned, we do some programs here. It's LGBTQ inclusive. It's usually a conversation that touches on social justice with an intersectional lens. We have a few programs coming up uh, tomorrow. Actually, we're doing a talk with the director of Pieces of Me, a focus on Toni Morrison. Sunday, it's addressing trauma in the Asian American community based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then finally, we end the year. You'll want to you want to write this down. It's it's huge. Mm-hmm. I cried when we got the confirmation. December 17th, we're ending the year with Robin Crawford, who will be here to discuss her memoir wow. and uh, her relationship with Whitney Houston. Can, so, can we come back? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> Fly up from LA. It's not right. Yo, but it's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I sure as hell want to dance with someone. So come back, <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks.